not entertained, welcome to the Lido Guards. Everybody for joining me for another episode of Leoverse. Today at the center of the Leoverse is good old friend of mine, Jericus. Welcome, Jericus, to the Leoverse, where you are the center of my universe. Oh, How shoot. are you doing, my friend? Man, I don't, I am, uh, <laughs> it's an amazing day today, you know, any day where we get the opportunity to impact people and make a difference in someone's life is a great day uh, for me. Absolutely. So as I start my podcast, it's the same questions for every guest. How does the world see you? Well, it depends on what their lens is. Not that I am racist or anything, but there are people who don't look like me who and even people who do look at look like me they see me as a threat right and generally and we can look at it and and i'm gonna help to uh, clarify what that threat looks like some people are gonna see me as a six foot 210 pound man in nike a black man who, you know, and then I get the moniker of a big black man. And so they're automatically scared when they see me and I may not be smiling, you know, some people will see me as a threat when you're on the job because of my intellectual capability, right? As I was sharing with you a little bit earlier, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry, three master's degrees, and I will be finishing my doctorate, defending my doctorate April 4th. From that point forward, you know, I'll be a doctor and I have a very niche skill set. My bachelor's in chemistry, I moved into, I started working on my PhD in chemistry and that was the um, right out of undergrad. And I was in California, you know, it was hard leaving our illustrious HBCU and going to a PWI where nobody looked like you they didn't they didn't operate with like you they didn't talk to you um and so with that it just became socially hard to be able to have that type of success and i would see a bunch of young um black males who couldn't stay in school so i kind of got bit by the bug of wanting this was somewhere around circa 2002 that i wanted to start doing things to help black and brown people make it to that level. So when they make it to the levels that we've attained, that they can look around and not be the only one in the room or feel like, oh my God, Leo is in here. And because Leah's, me and you are now butting heads because it, it can only be one that's in the room, right? Because that that's what people think. Or I can't associate with him because I don't want them to think that I'm with them, those guys. I think that some people see that as a threat. And then I think that some people see me as a, you know, somebody who grew up with a, a silver spoon in their mouth because of the level of attainment. But the thing that I always like to tell, and, you know, I've, especially working with kids is I've always said, what do you think? How do you think I grew up? And they'll be like, oh, you probably had both parents in the house and, you know, you grew up middle class and everything else. And I start laughing. I said, man, look, when Drake talks about coming from the bottom, I, my mom had me when she was 15. So I had a teenage mother, single parent household, kind of bouncing between your mom and your grandparents, right? 
you, you know, it's a community thing. The only thing that really kept me to, to help me on the track was that I did my work in school. But any, I feel like I had to overcome every, almost every stereotype that a black man has growing up to, to get to this level. So it wasn't easy. And then I think that for some people, I become a beacon of hope. I'm that, uh, you know, when you play cards, I'm that the big joker to help them get to that next level, right? Because when you think about it, a lot of people are waiting for somebody to come to encourage, empower, and empower giving them knowledge, right? Or sometimes, like, people are sometimes waiting on us to, and I, I'm going to always say this, so um, I was going to this church, and um, this pastor circa 2002 when I'm in California, always talked about the Old Testament. He always said the lineage, right, of Jesus, right? So people, this person had to do this for that person to do this, and people cannot activate until you do it. And all these people had to activate for the coming of Christ. And I, I look, and, and I've taken that to look at that is that there are a bunch of kids and, and people who cannot move until you give them what they need till you help put that battery in their back to get them, you know, moving in the right direction. Whether they like the vision for their life until you can speak it into them, whether you, whether they, um, they needed some guidance, right? I mean, sometimes it's just you believing in them because we all have our, we all have our thing. So for me, I think that for some people, I am that person to help get them to that next level. The world sees me, you know, I'm a dad, right? I'm a dad of, I'm a girl dad. So <laughs> of a two-time girl dad uh, who are teens now. And so you're going to see me as a protector, right? I'm ready to knock anybody's block off behind my babies. Uh, <laughs> so uh I think that that's how people, I think that's how many people see me. You know, I don't think that I let that define who I am, though. Where did the story start for you? Let's go into that with uh, being born from a 15-year-old teen mom. So, yeah, 15-year-old uh, mom, I, I guess my dad was 18. I really, uh, he wasn't really around, which is, you know, which is weird because your dad's not around, but my dad's family, like I was with them every weekend. Like my grandfather, who kind of filled that role as a father to me, you know, my grandmother. I I don't know, like growing up, I just felt like I had the best of everything. You know, I couldn't tell I was poor or anything like that. I had no clue because you don't know as a kid. I remember having Christmases where I walk into the living room and the whole living room is full of toys just for me. My mom actually sacrificed uh, a lot because uh, she was a three-sport star, homecoming queen. You know, this is after she had me. Three-sport, homecoming queen. She played basketball, field hockey, and softball. And, like, stand out. She could have went to college and played so uh, basketball, but she chose not to go so that she could be there to help raise me. It wasn't always, I mean, my stepfather was there. He's been there, you know, since I was three. It's, uh, it's always been us, right? And um, I lost my mother last 
June 1, you know, my mother passed. And so it's been very difficult because I've lost, not only did I lose my mom last year on June 1st, I lost my grandfather, my mom's father, um, August 28th, right after that, you know? So it's like you haven't even fully processed one death and then you get hit with another one. My grandparents, I have, you know, I grew up with like both my grandparents, you know, both sets. My mom, I love all of them. And, you know, to see them, some of them, like my dad's dad, who was like my father, died maybe 2003. And I didn't get a chance to see him, you know, I probably hadn't seen him since August of 2002. You know, I didn't get a chance. And I was trying to come home and I was trying to surprise him. And I'm the person that got the surprise because this was right around when Will was getting married. And then I lost my grandmother on my mom's side. Um, these are people who like, you know, me being the most stubborn, opinionated person. These are people that if they told me to do something, no matter how much I disagreed, I had enough respect for them that I would do what they said. And it always in the long run, played out extremely well for me by listening to them. It was, um, I think I was very fortunate growing up, no matter, you know, if I had a teen mother or, you know, thinking about the eviction notices that might have been on the door or the lack of food in the house. I mean, hell, we didn't even have hot water. We had to heat it on a kerosene stove to take baths and to, to do those things. And, you know, it, it was all it felt a little embarrassing, you know, at, at, at that point that I was having to go through these things. And um, and I always asked the Lord, why? Why didn't I have the family that was middle class to to, you know, not have this? I was a pretty in my mind, I was a pretty good kid. You know, I got straight A's and everything else growing up. So I was like, why is it that I don't have these things? It is only now with me being, you know, with some age that I could understand that it was never about me. It was about me going through those experience to help somebody else because I can say, guess what? I did it and you can do it too. It's that vicarious experience that um, I'm able to give them because once I tell them my story, they're like, oh man, you did it? Look at you. I would have never thought that you... So that is, you know... I just, I kept striving. Education, education, education is the one thing that I will always push. And, you know, I feel it's sad that people always stem that education has to come from a school. We get educated everywhere. Tell me somebody who sells drugs is not educated in the drug game. Tell me somebody who is a thief is not educated on how to steal and not get caught, right? Tell me how somebody who you know, we're educated in what we want to be educated in. And a lot of times the books and things don't don't jive well. The thing is find what your passion is and then perfect it. Right. But there is a basic, a baseline that we need to have that for us to be successful, especially with, with us being in a knowledge-based economy. Long gone are the days of manufacturing and you know, where you're going to get a good job, where if you just work hard and show up every day, we know, Leo, we know there's nepotism in every job that you're going to have to work twice as hard for half the money. 
you know, you know that you're going to have people when you walk in there doubting whether or not you could even do the job, even though you're more qualified than they are. I never forget my first job right out of college. The guy didn't know me. He didn't even have his he didn't even have a bachelor's degree yet. He he told me, oh, man, they pay you too much money. Why are you worried about how much money I make? OK, well, before we get into employment. I want to go into education, but your story really did hit home with me. Oh, Lord. Especially when you talked about nepotism at work. I had to take a deep breath on that one, man. Yeah. So where did this love for school, and can you go into the background of all your education, man? Your accomplishments <laughs> is, is as long as my arm. Okay. So I, I don't know why. Um, education. I just was good at it, right? I was good. I, I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was an innate. I just was good. And then I think when you everybody hits a point where they're really not into school, I think the because I did well, that people always, you know, we always, the praise that you get from doing well in education. I mean, I had self-motivation. But the praise when other people, then it's like, man, I can't let that person down because they believe in me. <laughs> right. A lot of times we speak there, you know, it's always talking about there's life and death in the tongue. And if you are telling your kid that they're dumb, they're never going to be anything, you're speaking that into existence. But if you tell them that they're going to be somebody and they work hard, that's what they're going to do. Always set the expectation. So, I set the expectation, but there it's not been without setback. First time I ever had a bad grade, I lost a full scholarship to Notre Dame. That's how I ended up at UMES because I went to Spring Fest. I saw all those beautiful women, and I said, this is where I need to be. Now, mind you, when I went to UMES, I knew I was going to have a full scholarship in December. I didn't even apply. I left it buried in my desk chair with clothes on top of it. I went to Spring Fest in April and I saw all those women on campus. I hand delivered. That was a Friday. I hand delivered it on Monday. <laughs> I hand delivered it on Monday and then called on Friday to, to say, yo, did y'all, are we, am I getting accepted or what? <laughs> so I had a great time at UMES. I got to do a lot of things that I think going to some of the other schools, I wouldn't have been afforded those opportunities like doing research for um, Dr. Oko and for, you know, pretty much most of my career there and having the ability to go and present at national, the research at national conferences, which led me. So I got a bachelor's from UMES in uh, chemistry. I then went and got I went to one year to UC Davis to work on my doctorate in chemistry. Then when I left, um, I went to Eastern University and got a master's in nonprofit management because I was leaving the lab and wanting to be more in business. So around the time when I got there, I was I was doing STEM before STEM became the hot topic. Right. So nobody would hire me because they didn't understand, like, you got this dude who can do math and science, nobody. So I started my own business. Then I went to Hopkins and I got a master's in educational studies with two graduate certificates, one in out-of-school time leadership, and then the other in school, family, and community collaboration. 
then I was like, ah, I want to get a doctorate. I don't know what it was. I wait. And when I started applying to programs, I saw a master's degree in education entrepreneurship at the University of Pennsylvania. So, you know, I went from HBCU to Ivy League. <laughs> and um went from HBCU to Classy. Yeah, right. But and I told the lady, I said, look, I want the network. I already got enough master's degrees. <laughs> I can line them up. I don't I don't care about the degree. But I did, I learned a lot, made met some great people, and then I was done. I was like, real, you know what? I'm never real quick. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but my one of my biggest questions from that is, did you notice any difference from your HBCU education to your Ivy League education? W was there a big, huge gap, or was there same old thing? Resources, resources, right? The resources that are available to you at some of these. At like an Ivy League, I don't think that um, are there for an HBCU. Like I could go on when I was a student at Penn, I could go and 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 download a twelve hundred dollar marketing research report that I could not get at UMES. Right, like it was nothing. The resources that you have and the articles and the journals and things that you have access to, like even even some of the facilities now. The thing that I liked about my HBCU was the people aspect. I think I, I feel like I had more personable teachers. No, no, I wouldn't say that. I think I had great teachers no matter where I went. It was really the differences, the resources. I don't want to put myself too much in this interview, uh, but I would say I went to College Park for a little bit there. Right. I remember. And I felt like the big difference for me from a PWI to a HBCU is, I felt that a PWI treated me like a piece of cattle. Mm -hmm. Just put me through this farm system that pushed me out, didn't have any resources that I needed. I was just a number in a classroom that was overfilled and it just felt like a product where an HBCU plants the seed and grows the seed. Right. Um, and, you know, and because it wasn't undergrad, it was a little, I had a, a a different experience, right? Not that, you know, I'm uh going and there's um other, there's like four or five black males. We had maybe two black women, right? And so out of a class of like 20, because this is a small specialized program and that way, I think they were, and because it was a new program, they were heavily invested in all of our, they all, and even now, you know, I haven't been in a program in like five years, you know, even now I could still reach out to them as if I were a current student, the same way I would do at UMES, right? The, then I wasn't going back to school anymore, but I took a job that was going to pay 100% for me to, to do, um, to do my doctorate so i went and i'm wrapping up my doctorate at dell state because i wasn't gonna go and this guy was like man you've done the hard work you've already went to the top schools you just need to get a doctorate and and finish so i was like okay and that's what i did i did one more thing <laughs> i went to umbc and got a graduate certificate in, in um instructional technology at the time you know when COVID took place 
a lot of people don't know how to do, you know, a lot of teachers in school districts were putting everything online and the teachers had no experience on how do I deliver an engaging lesson online. I wanted to finish uh, or not finish. I wanted to be like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was in charge of building a STEM academy for middle and high school students. And I, it was in person, added a couple classes. Now I didn't took 17 classes and then had to put them all online. I think I ended up putting 13 online because a couple weren't, um, we weren't able to do, but I ended up putting 13 classes online from 17 classes. Wow. That's impressive, my friend. So tell me more about this doctor program. You know, you might have some future doctors out there or people who want to aspire to you, man. You got to tell me the, how you do that, how, how process, methodology, and you're doing this while being a family man, raising your two daughters. I was PTA president. Uh, I was basketball. I was doing basketball coach. I was coaching basketball when they were playing. I was then trying to make it to the games plus working full time. They, it is difficult. And if you are not invested and you don't really want it, you'll find out real quick that you're not willing to do what it's going to take. Right now, I was my program is three and a half years. I'm in year five. I should have finished December 2020. Wasn't that I took my time. I finished my classes just whatever, like everybody else. The first two years, it was about the research. So I, I wanted to do something because I, I like to make a splash, right? So I decided that I wanted to do a grounded theory study. And a grounded theory study is basically saying, no, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to tell you why your theory is, is right or whatever. I'm going to come up with my own. And that's what I did. And I think, don't quote me yet, but I think I am the first grounded theory study done at Delaware State University. Wow. Congratulations. Can, can you give us a 5,000 feet? What, what is uh, well, what is my, oh, it's, it's simple. My research is on, my research is on does teacher education programs prepare uh, new teachers or which are teachers who have less than three years experience? Are they prepared to teach critical subject areas in at-risk secondary schools in the United States? And it's the, the difference is I'm telling it as a qualitative study from the vantage point of a teacher, them telling us what they need because a lot of teachers don't have a voice. Like we're not going back to our teacher education program saying, look, Leo, you didn't teach me how to deal with these with these kids. Right. We didn't even have a class. So we wanted to I wanted to find out what that is that that teachers need because they're leaving half of within five years. Half new teachers leave the field of teaching. Fifty percent are leaving. And, you know, and when when we talk about critical subject areas, that's your math, your sciences your CTE classes, your uh, English, your foreign languages, your special education. And it's and the thing is, it's 50% across the board. That's even the good schools. There is nothing that's telling us how many are leaving these at-risk schools like in Baltimore, right? Like- so Wait a minute, these numbers you're saying are holistic. They don't even pinpoint down to underserved communities? Now, the research done by uh, Richard Ingersoll out of UPenn 
says that it's 50 percent of new teachers leave or teachers leave within the first five years. Are, are they looking for new careers or going to private schools? What what's where why are they leaving? Where they're going? Because you know it's the thing with as most of us expectation versus reality. This is what I'm thinking teaching is going to look like. I'm thinking teaching is going to be easy because everybody thinks teaching is easy because we sat in school from kindergarten to 12th grade and then we went to college. Oh man, teaching is going to be easy, man. I'm going to have summers off and then I got spring break. I'm going to be at home with my kids all. But then they don't understand what they saw one aspect of what teaching is. They didn't see when the kids was getting on the teacher's nerves and the teacher's trying to teach and kids is acting up and or you know you got administration hounding you when you trying to fix things with your kids like there it's a whole thing that teachers do and then you know even looking at it historically most teachers only taught because they were waiting for a new job or a different job and most of the time that was men going into ministry or going to jobs to make more money. So they were teachers. And then the women were doing it because they were called dames. And this was widowed women was because it was just like, ah, you know, let me teach them something, you know. But when education first started in this country, it was about educating them for the workforce to be a part of something, right? So if I was a farmer, I taught my son everything that was part of the education. I'm teaching my son how to farm. The girls were learning the things about running the house, and then they had to be able to read so that they could read the Bible. It was about, that was what education was. Now we're so far away from that. I don't even know if we know what the purpose of our education system is at this point. And then you got legislation saying what can and can't be taught in schools now. It's just a cluster right now. It is. And until you in there and you know, with these kids but what one thing for certain is that we need kids who can think and here's what i'm gonna say about that how how if we need kids who can think and they need to be taught these 21st century skills why are these same skills not taught in the teacher education program because of the scientific management system that our schools were set up in teachers are supposed to be mindless pawns we're going to tell you what to do curriculum is king you do it but that may work in an industrial revolution, but in a technology revolution, we need teachers who are fast, can adapt and think, and therefore you have to teach them that. Well, you it was to. it was partially Bush with the standardized testing, right? Um, it was way before Bush. The, wow. This has been going on. When I'm telling you this has been going on, it, Bush might have string, uh, made more stringent and try to do hold a, uh, people accountable. But the system has been broken since the 1800s, 19 to 1910s is when we really started having mass uh, education, somewhere around that, the early 1900s. So let's go into the second question I gave you. How do you see yourself? How do I see myself? I see myself as a civil rights leader. I see myself as a, um, because education and the lack thereof is now becoming a social justice issue, right? No education means, think about it, and I'm going to use Baltimore because we're both familiar with it and just in conversation, right? If people don't live in Baltimore, they don't buy houses in Baltimore, then guess what? Baltimore doesn't have 
uh, property tax coming in to fund the schools. People don't understand. State may give you money, but most of schools are run by by property taxes. That's that's how your your education is funded, right? So now they got all these empty abandoned houses that nobody's paying property tax. So guess what? Now I'm going to get I'm going to be in a school that's not good, right? And a teacher who may or may not care, or may or or I'm not going to say they may or not care may feel like they cannot do anything to help change that my outcome. How can I ever be successful when I'm fighting all of these of this upward hill battle? And my in my mind what what I'm going to do is I'm going to be on the front line fighting at a different level. Maybe not on the ground floor but maybe getting into the room to help change some policies. Maybe preparing some teachers to, to help some kids in, in the way that they can. I'm hoping that my research and everything that I've been doing will have an impact not only on this continent, but across the world. I think that the continent of Africa is so ripe for progress and technology. And we just, but there's a disconnect from us as African-Americans to Africans. And that is the, these are the bonds and the things that we have. Could we have a real life Wakanda? Absolutely. We have the knowledge, the, the creativity, the ingenuity, the, the fact that people don't even understand the microphones we use was created by a black man, right? Dr. James West, your fellow Morgan Knight, I think her name's Valerie Harris, developed 3D. And you gonna tell us we, the catalytic converter, every time we go to the, when that check engine light come on, that catalytic converter come on. Dr. Meredith Gordine, who not only was he a, did he develop that and was he an engineer, he was also a silver Olympian, right? We can do so much. So my, my goal is to show people that you can have a great life through education. You don't need to be a, a entertainer or an athlete. Like Biggie said, either you slang crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. That's not true. We just need, they don't see enough of us. And when I say us, I'm talking about you, me, the, the middle class, the, the, the very attainable and having a good lifestyle. We don't have to be suit. We can buy some things, but we don't have, I don't need to run around in Balenciagas and things like, because at the end of the day, that's not what's important to me. What's important to me is when I can go outside and I'm not worried about being robbed because guess what? You can, you know, you understand your assignment that I can see that somebody could walk up to me and thank me for helping to change their life, you know, hopefully positively, you know? That is, those are the things that I see. That's what I see myself as. I see myself as just being, you know, just being a vessel to help. You know, when I first started this, it was all about black and brown, black and brown. But it's not about black and brown. It's a, it's about everybody, right? Black and brown people aren't the only people robbing people, right? Black and brown people aren't the only ones that are strung out on drugs when they can't deal with the realities of their their day to day. We need to be in it to help each other. And that's what 
that's my goal is if I can reach one or two and then that two people can reach two to it, you know, it's kind of like network marketing. If I get one person here, then they do this. So, you know, that's what I want to, that's what I, that's how I see myself. Um, and I'm taking the opportunities to, to help change and create generational wealth within our communities. That means you don't have to work hard, but I want to be able to leave my kids something besides them, some debt and a GoFundMe or selling some chicken dinners to bury me. I want that money to turn over where my grandkids are spending money to off the, the, the backs. Uh, off of the fruits of my labor, right? Because guess what? The the Walton family, I was looking at, do you know that out of the the first 499 billionaires are all white? The top black billionaire is 500th in the world. The top American billionaire, I think, was like 1,200 in the world. 1,200 big. There's probably three, four, five thousand billionaires in the world do you i don't even want to get on that but that that type of wealth and the average age of those billionaires are probably somewhere around 60 and then uh, you know you throw in a couple of the younger guys but most of them family inheritance somebody passed it on to me this was my dad's cut who died now i got his cut it's worth 66 billion dollars because i'm part of walmart or or they had access to resources that the average person like bill gates he went to a private school he went to a private school the parents the parents bought uh time for, on the computer so he learned the, how to program on that because the pta bought the the and then when they ran out of money for that he was sneaking out and running down to the university of washington and programming at night so when he got to college he'd already been doing it for years you can't tell me nothing when it's just it's just coming out just think microsoft he tried to sell microsoft to ibm and they was like get out of here kid I mean, he took that to the bank but even elon musk he had access steve jobs had creativity but he had access to network and that's the thing people have to understand it is not always about what you know it's about who you know and who likes you and will they give you an opportunity or will they give you that information that you need to be great you bring up a key thing that i failed to do in my life this is where i'm horrible at networking how do you network how do i network how how does jericus network and how can somebody like me get on that level you got to put yourself out there a lot of times people are too cool uh, or whatever and when you're doing i'm gonna tell you this when you're doing great things and people realize you're doing great things they will become your mouthpiece for you you don't have to network and be like, oh, somebody going to say, oh, Leo's doing this great podcast. Um, let me connect you with this person. Let me connect you with Will. Right now I make the introduction. Now you talk to Will. Oh, man, this is really this is a, a fantastic podcast. And Leo is awesome. I think he has a great mission. When people see your vision, the network comes because the provisions will already be made. When people see your vision, the provisions will be made. Sometimes we don't know when that's going to come. And, you know, I feel like I sound like a Baptist preacher sometimes. It's like all that growing up uh, starting to pay off, like, you know, sitting in church and, and everything else. But the provisions are made when people see your vision, they they attach themselves to, to greatness.
They will attach themselves. They will get you to people because they want to see you succeed. And I think that that is the thing that you have to know. You have to have your vision. A lot of people don't have vision. It's like, let me throw a bunch of things up and see what sticks. No, you have to have a vision. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And be able to communicate that effectively and clearly. That's that's networking, Jerry. When you ask me, you'd be like, hey, Jerry, cause, hey, nice to meet you. What are you doing? Hey, Leo, what do you do? I shake their hand, strong, firm handshake. I look them in the eye and I have an elevator pitch about me. Sometimes you use it sometimes and you have to be prepared. You I can see that. You see, have to be prepared. My, my counter to that is sometimes if you're in a company that doesn't see your value, like um, the culture and you don't mix because you're that, not a yes guy. Network, but see, that's where it is. I don't network hardly with anybody that I work with. I don't. If I were in a job, which I'm not now, but if I were in a job, I don't network with people in a job. I network outside of my job. Ooh. So you're saying don't network and work, network outside if you want to make big things happen for yourself. See, here's the thing when you network at work, the thing that if you are able to do what I'm telling you to do, it, you know, have your elevator pitch, be, you know, and being that person. Remember I said the world sees me as a threat. My personality is going to threaten somebody who doesn't have that personality. They maybe have half the smarts and I'm able to people start getting threatened by your job. So the culture is the culture are you is usually done by people who are insecure. And guess what? I don't want I don't want this smart black guy taking my job. Right. So they're going to do everything to make you feel like you don't fit in, that you don't belong there. And because they because they don't want if people recognize your greatness, they know that they're going to be obsolete. And everything that people do when they create that culture is about self-preservation. So that's, you know. That's why sometimes, like for me, I my goal is never to work for anybody. My goal is to put myself in a position to be able to call the shot. And you that and that's the thing is you have to know yourself. My vision for my life was never for me to be working a nine to five every single day for somebody else. Never, never had that vision. You know what's so funny is we talk about out of the mouth, out of the mouth of babies. I was uh, at my cousin's house one day and my cousin's dad, who I hadn't seen in years, is over hanging out. And he was telling a story about me. He said, man, when Jericus was about eight years old, he said, oh, I'm a, he said, I'm a, I'm leaving here. I'm never coming back because, you know, I grew up on the Eastern Shore, right? So I'm, I'm leaving here. I'm never coming back because I'm going to be a doctor. And I'm laughing that he told the story because look at me, I am like three weeks away from being a doctor. I'm, and I keep to my word because I haven't lived on the Eastern shore in 20 plus years. Jericus, that man, this has been a great conversation. I want to respect your time, man. You have had a powerful message it is a beautiful, powerful. Thank you so much. You gave me insights. You gave me goosebumps to be honest. Like, so you know, that's the thing is, you know, you have a job, when I take a job, literally, I have an exit strategy. Just like any business, a good business person, when you go to any business school, they tell you, you work the business for about five years, you have an exit strategy. 
long gone are the days of working somewhere 15, 20, 25 years and thinking that they're going to respect you and retire you. No, they're not. They're going to, they you're making too much money. Let me let you go. You can't do what I can get this new kid to do, right? Long gone are those days. When I took the last job that I told you about, I was working and I talked to my boss. I probably was a few months into my job and he said, I said, so, you know, I'm trying to understand, like, where can I go from this position and everything else? He said, there's nowhere for you to go because after your position, it's my position. And he wasn't in his mind. He wasn't leaving his position. So that's why I said people will feel threatened if you showing out and you doing the thing and they will do everything that they could possibly do to discredit you to the upper because it's about self-preservation. So from that day forward, I knew that I was only there because they were paying for my doctorate and that once I got my doctorate that I was leaving. So I gave myself to January 2021. That's when I was going to leave because I never worked anywhere more than two and a half years. So now I, I was going to work there for four years, right? Because I told you I would have finished my doctorate in three and a half, which I should have finished December 2020. But it didn't happen. I did leave January 2021. I did finish my doctorate. I did get the graduate certificate. I mean, but what I had to pay for the to finish my research was nominal compared to what was there. Again, you it's all about vision and people have. And then um, the other morning I, I was struggling. I woke up. Some things were in my mind. And, you know, sometimes uh, the memes on Instagram and stuff get to you. So I, I ended up watching uh joyce Myers, she you know because i'm a late night normally when i'm watching tv i'm flipping through because normally i'm watching like forensic files first 48 ncis new orleans whatever is playing my, like, my guilty pleasures day mine right so i'm watching this and joyce myers i'm flipping through the channels and she comes up and she says if you have a complaint you should have a vision to deal with if you have a complaint yeah, she said, and then the way she gave a very good, she said, Martin Luther King had a, was complaining about racism. So he had a vision or a dream and he did the things that he did. Same thing with you. If you have a complaint about where you are in your job, where you are in your life, you should have a vision on how you're going to change it. You can't sit there and complain when you're not willing to do, put in the work or even a forethought on how you're going to change that in your life. Man, you know what? You need to add a uh, coach, life coach in your uh, resume now. Man, that's some powerful stuff there, man. You could sell that in, in, in like and a Gatorade box. Listen, when, when I saw that, Leo, when I, because I'm telling you, I was struggling. I was going through it myself, right? You know, and when I listened to that, when she said that completely, what are you doing? Anything I got to complain about, how are you going to change it? What is your vision for changing that? Can I change it today? No. What's my long-term plan for changing it? And then sometimes you can't change it and you just got to change strategy. You, you Right. That That's your vision though. Yes, I can't change that, but what I can do, I can get up out of there. So what's my vision for getting up out of there? You ain't, you can't pay me with, you You can't, uh, people keep talking about pay, pay, pay. Sometimes it's not about the pay. You can get somewhere else that's going to pay you. And it's going to be way worse because they're going. The expectation is going to go up. That you know you might have had it good over here. Sometimes that thirty grand ain't worth the headache that you're going to have. Sometimes the grass is greener though. Sometimes the grass is greener, but guess what? If you're going to do it, if you're going to complain about it, have a vision on what's next for you. Either you're going to stay there or you're going to move. Jared, Either you're going to say, "Yo, you know what? Forget moving. 
I, this is where my passion is. This is what I'm ready to put forth all of my energies and effort to. And then that's what you do. Leo, you know, one of the things people didn't, when I first made a career change, I and I slept on Brian's couch for a whole year. Do you remember that? When I was sleeping on Brian's couch from July 2004 to July 2005, I slept on his couch for a whole year while I was trying to get myself together. I, it was demoralizing. You had a job as a, a chemist making good money to you sleeping on your man's couch. But I had a vision to fix. And my complaint was the lack of black males achieving in school. And then it became broader and just kids in general and that things that I could help, I could change. My story can help change somebody else's life. Oh, absolutely. You changed my life just talking to me, man. You you made me reevaluate some of the things in my life. I'm just so happy I had you on this podcast because hopefully we help change somebody else's life. Uh, absolutely. I, I do. Um, I'm going to do shameless plug. If you uh, would like to reach out to me, you can uh, you can email me at the applied learning academy at gmail.com. Again, it is the applied learning academy at gmail.com. Hey, um, on my website, I'm going to put your promotion stuff there. Okay. You know, anything you want, uh, just send me that information. But I don't want to I want to respect your hour. Um, the way I end the interviews is I ask people, this is kind of like a Jesus and Miro thing. You know, you know how they say, you know, what, yeah, what the frame you know. and remember that was the I, last time I saw you was at Jesus and Miro. Um, so I like to call it an exit interview quote. Okay. So that's my little flip on it. I, I think you already gave some hot quote already, but let's hear your, how you want everybody to remember you on this interview, your last words. Um, I'm going to end with one of my heroes. Actually, I'm going to end with two because they, they're synonymous or not synonymous. But they're so one Nelson Mandela said, education is the most powerful weapon that can change the world. And Malcolm X said, education is the passport for the future for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. That is what we need to be doing. You know, wherever you are prepare because there will come a time where you may be in demand. Sometimes it's just not your season. And and when you're not in that season, think about a seed. You plant it in the ground, you cover it up. You may not see that seed, but your watering is growing underneath. And when it comes, it's going to bear fruit. And that's what we have to always remember. Wow. That's deep, man. Hey, thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy thank day you. to do this interview. And now it's back to now it's back to dissertation. Thank you, my friend. Thank, thank you for the you. powerful message, the powerful words. I hope we change somebody's life for the better. I do too.